Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds. Oh man, you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files. We'll edit that out. Forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and I was really smooth. Like, it, I, we got to edit that out. But ordering CDs for these speakers and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light of Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to thank. I'm sorry. I would like to introduce our speaker tonight, Abby. Hi guys, I'm Abby. I'm a compulsive overeater and recovering bulimic. Hi, and all the rest of the things that you can do with food or not do or exercise or laxatives or diet pills or shame really around doing all those activities. And uh, shame has been the big theme on my mind lately. And um, as somebody who walked into the rooms in January 2005, I've been here 17 and a half years. And I have 17 and a half years of abstinence by God's grace. But what I don't have abstinence from is binging on shame. And that's why I stay in the rooms. Because that is still just so wired into my being. And I need to have this program and the messages of this program and a spiritual solution. So I'm not binging on that. Um, because even, I wasn't supposed to speak today. Uh, there was a, a fellow who was supposed to speak. She couldn't make it. And she texted me yesterday. And my first instinct was like, oh. I just led Kitchen Sink, I just listened to it, I was so bad, and I don't want to do it, and then, you know, the muscle memory and the new wiring that I have is like, you're doing a 90 and 90, this is the God voice, you didn't get to a meeting yesterday, it'll be a great way to hit up two meetings today, and it's not about you, and, you know, it'll be a great opportunity to take your ego out of it, and that's not me. That wiring is not the voice that I was born with or raised with. That is truly the rewiring of this program that I'm just so grateful for. So I'm just going to ask God to take my ego out of it and um, share the message because we have newcomers here, which is amazing. So welcome to the newcomers. Welcome to the chip takers. Welcome to the birthday people. And um, I'll just really get granular about my story Um Yeah, because it's not about me being sick of my own voice. It's showing up and giving back what I was freely given uh, and how I'm still on this planet because this program saved me from wanting to kill myself from the shame of what I was doing with food and what my body looked like. And to go back to what it looked like, um, yeah, there was just a lot of shame in my household um, and me being told I was wrong from the very beginning and me feeling like I was wrong from the very beginning. Um, I remember that there was a war. The first thing the war started on of my compulsions was my thumb sucking. Um, and my parents really wanted me to stop sucking my thumb. They took my blanket away. Uh, and there was all of the, like, reward system. That didn't do it. And just so much language around, you're wrong, you're doing something wrong, you need to stop. Um, and that continued. The next thing that was later on that I was wrong and doing something wrong about was the second compulsion I picked up to self... I now know there are self-soothing techniques I needed. Um, it was the best that I could do, my little brain can do, to check me out of a situation that I didn't learn until later was not safe, that I needed to be checked out from. So the next compulsion that started was I started pulling out my eyelashes and eyebrows. Now, this became 
completely intolerable to my parents. It was a sign that there was something wrong, very, very wrong, and I became very, very wrong, especially the way I looked. So so much messaging around the way that I looked being wrong. Not nice messaging. You look like an alien. You look like a cancer patient. Uh, why are you doing this to yourself? Um, nobody's ever going to love you. And now, many years out, in lots of other modalities, I can have compassion for my parents that this is the best that they could do. You know, they didn't know any better. Um, this is what they were taught to do, this shaming type of behavior. And so that's what they knew to do with me. And But so much wiring and messaging of, like, if I don't look a certain way, I'm not going to be loved. Like, that became truly ingrained into my brain. Um, the next compulsion I picked up was the food. I think the food had always been there uh, to soothe, but it didn't start showing up on my body until around puberty-ish. Um, and then I was put on lots of diets. We, um, what was happening on my plate was not okay. Um, what happened was happening. My body was not okay. So much restriction. Um, so then, of course, you know, and it's funny now looking back, any t- I have such a problem with authority, which I didn't realize because I was always like the overachieving straight A person. But like anytime someone has ever told me to not do something, I'm 100% going to do that. So like my parents were telling me to stop sucking my thumb. I sucked my thumb till I was 32 years old. Uh, my parents were telling me not to eat sugar and there was no sugar in the house. The second I was at a friend's house with sugar, I was eating all of the sugar. Um, so I now know the way for me to stop any behavior is to meet it with complete and utter gentleness and love and not restriction and not criticism and not shame. So I then took it upon myself uh, to figure out ways to change my body. Uh, And that was really fueled um, by competition. (laughs) When I went to college, well, first of all, in high school, I just thought I was so fat. I was so fat. I didn't get to wear the, I didn't think I was wearing the clothes that my friends were wearing. And now I look back and I look at pictures and I'm like, I was fine. I was totally fine. And just the compassion for that little girl just had such a warped sense of being um, and had just no sense of like what I look like. Um, And also that nobody deserves shame no matter what they look like, right? That's something I've learned. Um, So then I got to college. And I wasn't getting the attention. I'm a very competitive person. And I wasn't getting the attention from boys that my friends were getting. And so this finally was the thing that made me want to pick up things that really, very quickly, were going to change my body into the way that I thought it needed to look in order for me to get the attention that I wanted. So I picked up compulsive exercise. I picked up bulimia. I picked up eventually anorexia, but my perfectionism is so loud that I always thought I did anorexia wrong because I could only do it for like a couple months and I got so far down the scale and I was getting a lot of positive attention, um, but then I got mono because I was so underweight and my body was in such a ravaged state and I was also overworking as well. I was in college, it was summer break, I was working my job to make money. I was working an internship, and uh, I was not eating. And so all of that, my body was just so, um, but I thought it was all great. I was skinny. I was, like, 
already in my career field and I was making money. So like, I thought I was doing awesome. My body was like, you are not doing awesome because now you have mono. <laughs> and after I recovered from the mono, the second I started eating food again, like the weight just went the other way. So that's why I always thought it was a failed anorexic because it only lasted a couple months. Turns out I did it so well, I got myself mono. <laughs> so um, it just goes back to that message that I'm not, so I'm doing something wrong. So much of that message, I'm doing something wrong. So I went by senior year in college. I had exhausted laxatives. I really didn't like laxatives because there's just too much math involved. Um, and I didn't like having to pay attention to the timing. Uh, that was too tough. And then uh, I was also using diet pills. And, like, my body just wasn't responding. And it was, like, staying at this one number on the scale. And I didn't understand why it wasn't going below. And I was just so angry, but um, I couldn't, I didn't know what else to do, but luckily I was graduating. I was graduating, there was a new problem, I needed to get a job in my career field. When I graduated, because my parents had put this, I, I look back now and I'm like, it's like Lucy with the football, right? Like there's so many instances where like, okay, well if you do this, then we'll support you. So like, in between my junior and senior year, they uh, have been very generous to say, you know, we'll pay for your accommodations if you get an internship in New York. This is what a lot of kids are doing. So I, being the industrial type A person that I am, I got a big book of internships. I sent out 80 resumes and cover letters by mail, snail mail. So this was <laughs> no email yet. So this took effort. And I got three internships. And I called them to tell them, they're like, oh, no, you can't take those. It has to be paid. And I was like, that wasn't the rules of the game. If those were the rules of the game, I would have done that. And so, but then, like, oh, I did it wrong, right? Another message, I did it wrong. So the same thing happened when I was graduating. I magically, not magically, through hard work and God and my internship, I got a job right before I graduated uh, working for a job in New York. This crazy job. And by the way, this is such a God thing. I thought I was getting one job. That exploded. God saw to it that I got a slightly different job, which then led, like, to the career of my wildest dreams as a 21-year-old in Manhattan. But that wasn't me. Anyway, I called my parents to tell them, I got this job. It's amazing. Like, I'll move to New York. And the only thing I heard was, how are you going to afford your life? You can't li live your life on that amount of salary. Like, yelling, shaming, yelling, shaming. And by this point, I was like, enough. You know, I basically said to my father, I've been able to live my life and pay for my life and whatever I needed. You guys have helped out, and I'm grateful for that. But, like, at this point, I'm done, and you have no more input. If I can't pay for my life, then I'm just going to be a sex worker in New York. <laughs> That's, and that way, and I hung up the phone. So that was the end of, like, and it's so, and it, this plays in later, like, it is so important to me to pay for my own life because, to me, that represents security and safety from where I come from. And so right now, I'm in a place of, like, financial insecurity, and it's bringing up so, like, it's triggering me on, like, a very deep, 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 deep level, which is why I'm doing a 90 and 90, because God's got it. I will never have to go back to that. God's got it. Anyway, so I moved to New York, and uh, by this point, I was, remember, I'm already, like, pissed, because I'm, like, I'm doing all of these crazy behaviors, and the number on the scale I'm not liking already. And I moved to New York, and I'm working this crazy 24-hour job as an assistant. 
for this very powerful woman in my industry who's got a big personality and there's lots of yelling from her and lots of yelling from her clients. And my solution would be when I would go get her cold diet coat from the break room, I would also get myself a bagel and cream cheese like seven times a day. And that was coding me to deal with like this big new life with not having, not being equipped in the slightest for all of these big emotions and pressure. So very quickly, I may not have liked the number on the scale before, I gained 30 pounds in three months of living in New York. And for me, I just, I stopped getting on the scale. I was in a tiny, tiny, tiny little Manhattan apartment. I didn't have a full length mirror. So I was able to just keep it, keep looking from the neck up in total denial, and my clothes didn't fit anymore, my cunning, baffling, and disease told me, because they shrunk in the dryer. So that's, I didn't have to deal with it until I moved to L.A. And I moved to L.A. in 2004 for my dream job. And I was so excited, like, 23. Like, now I'm really making in my career, except for the fact I looked around and I looked different than the people that I thought I needed to look like to be successful in my industry. And I'm like, well, this is very much a problem. Now I'm like, I have a little bit of a wake-up call. And so then I went back to doing extremely drastic things with food. And lo and behold, it didn't work. And now I really was like, what am I going to do? Well, how, I mean, if I don't manipulate my body into the way I think it needs to look, I'm not going to get the next job. I'm not going to get the guy. I'm not going to. So then why am I even here? Right? Like, I didn't realize at the time that those thoughts, that's called suicidal ideation. Like, why should I even be here if I can't get X, Y, and Z? And to me, that's just like, obviously, the way you think. Um, I learned later that not everybody thinks like that. Um, And so much gentleness for that girl who thought that that was the answer. Anyway, so I went to a commercial diet program for time number three, (laughs) because this was January. 2005, and what was my New Year's resolution? But to lose the weight, because that was my New Year's resolution thing. So I think I had started making New Year's resolutions. And so I would go to the weigh-in on Saturday mornings at the place on Beverly, and the woman would weigh me in, and she would look at me, and she'd be like, you gained one pound and eight ounces. And my initial reaction is I wanted to punch her in the face for giving me this bad news. But then I also wanted to kill myself. And I would go out that night, and I was very social. I was working constantly. I would be in the office, but I was also doing drinks and parties and brunches and lunches and constantly out in the world at every room that I walked into. I was not present. What I was doing, I would walk in and I would scan the room and see, like, where did me and my body compare to everybody else in the room? Are they prettier than me? Am I prettier? Am I fatter? I'm definitely fatter. And, like, this was the chatter going on anytime I walked into a room. Like, I couldn't be present for my life. I couldn't be present for this, like, awesome career that I love so much because this is, this is what was filling my brain. And so I was really at a loss. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do I'm gonna do this. Like, how am I going to do this? And it was that desperation. And we hear we get given the gift of desperation that I was willing to walk into these rooms with a name that I hated. Because my binge buddy in college, my Eskimo, had been telling me about Overeaters Anonymous for the past six months, and she was on the East Coast. And I was like, there's no 
effing way on God's green earth that I am walking into a room that is called Overeaters Anonymous. I mean, I was barely acknowledging that I was, you know, overweight at this point. Like, the, the dissonance in my brain was crazy. Like, I couldn't even, I, I felt it, and I was so miserable, but I also didn't want to admit it. But, you know, six months later, I had no other options. So I walked into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous um, in West Hollywood, and I shared this uh, at, at Kitchen Sink when I led, and I just have to share it again, because it didn't even occur to me then that this was a God shot. But it was a total, it was God showing up to make sure that I found this spiritual solution. And the God shot is, is that I looked it up online. By this time, there was internet, so thank you. <laughs> Not different from what I was sending in my resumes. And I looked up a meeting, and somehow I walked into the log cabin on a Sunday morning, and I walked in, and like 100 AA members looked my way. And I was like a deer in headlights. I'm like, what the? What did I just walk into? This is clearly not where I'm supposed to be. I'm feeling extremely intimidated. And I scurried into the back um, of the log cabin where there's a little kitchen. And I'm like hyperventilating. And lo and behold, there was another girl there. And she had also somehow thought that there was an OA meeting at the same time. And so she said to me, she said, you know, I, if you still want to go to a meeting, I know of one uh, that's in Beverly Hills called Serenity Sunday, and I can give you the address. And so she gave me the address, and I went to Serenity Sunday, and that was officially my first meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. Talk about character defects. I looked around the room, and nobody looked like me. And I was still in that judgment place of, like, I don't like the name of this place. But something happened in that I heard people talking about the way I felt about my body. And I heard people talking about the crazy stuff that I was doing with food. And I heard people say, go to six meetings and wait to hear your story and... uh, If you don't, maybe this isn't for you, but stay before the miracle happens. Stay until the miracle happens. And the miracle is that I stayed, and that the second meeting I heard my story. The second meeting was an all-women's meeting, also in West Hollywood, and I looked around the room, and this is just what my disease needed. Everybody in the room was very pretty and very thin, and if I'd seen anybody in this meeting walking on the street, I would have been like, your life is perfect, I need to figure out a way for my body to look like your body, and maybe you have the secret to tell me. And the secret all these ladies had in this room was that they go to Overeaters Anonymous and they work a 12-step program, which was not the answer I thought I was looking for, but turns out it's the answer I needed. And in that meeting, I had a really strange phenomenon happen. I was sitting in a circle, avoiding the mirror on the along the wall, because like still mirrors were not cool for me, and... The woman who led, she was thin, she was a brunette, she was in my career field, and she was married. So she had all the things I thought I wanted at the time. But what was coming out of her mouth, I related to in such a crazy way that I started shaking. And up until this point, like, I had no feelings. I had learned in when I was brought to the parade of therapists as a kid that I had two feelings, stressed and not stressed. I pulled out my eyelashes and eyebrows when I was stressed, and there was no magical reason for that in my home. That was me, a me problem, and not stressed. And then all of a sudden, so I, like, I didn't think I had any other feelings. And, like, when I worked for all of these crazy people that I did in my career, I was like, I don't feel fear. That's too bad for you that you feel that emotion, because I just don't. 
And it turns out I've learned I was just numb. I was just numbing with food. I was numbing with obsession. And I was numbing with a lot of other things that I then had to have removed. I don't usually do it on my own. What happens is something in my life explodes. And then I'm like, oh, I need to treat this with the 12 steps. So uh, just to get, like, shame right now is the thing that I'm, like, brought to my knees at. I'm like, I need to treat this thing. Like, really look at it. This is the thing I'm doing a lot of writing on. Anyway, so in this room, I start shaking. I'm like, what is happening? And I now know I was having a panic attack because I was so overwhelmed with emotion that I didn't know how to feel. And I just grabbed my chair. And I just held on for dear life. And um, I'm like, something's happening here. And this is really, and then I'm like, these people have something that I want. And so then I, I was in. At that point, I'm in. I found a sponsor. By God's grace, I've been with the same sponsor for the whole 17 and a half years. And she is not more than a couple years older than me, but it's this such an unconditionally loving, uncritical presence in my life that was so the opposite of what I learned growing up that it was God's gift for me to really be willing to look at my food. So defensive about anybody looking at my food or talking about it. And we did the uh, red light, green light, yellow light list, like what are my alcoholic foods. We also did what are my alcoholic behaviors because there were a lot of behaviors that would lead into a binge. Um, behaviors too around binging on the body obsession like pictures not a good idea for me at the time looking at pictures and like beating myself up around pictures mirrors trying on clothes tornado also not a good idea um and buying clothes that fit me instead of being tight because then all day long I'm thinking about like how um I'm a piece of that who like whose body isn't right and that all of that gave me the grace to start working the steps and put um, some space between me and the body obsession and the food behaviors. Um, and so I didn't get physical recovery, and I don't want to scare anybody, for two years. <laughs> and I needed that because what I needed to pick up so, so, so um, effectively, like it really worked for my sanity, were the tools of the program of learning how to deal with the emotions that ended up coming up now that I put the food down. Um, even though I still had other numbing devices, there was there was now enough room for emotion to come up. So I learned, especially as a bulimic, instead of putting my feelings into the toilet for that release, I put it on paper. Uh, I started connecting to other people and picking up the phone. It took me a minute, but um, once I did, that's been the true thing to arrest my shame, is connecting with another fellow. And the principle behind step one is honesty and being honest with somebody else, whether it's the group. Because I wasn't ready. First, it was the group. I was I was willing to share in a group, but not willing to pick up the phone. But when I started telling people what I was doing and what was in my head, all of a sudden the power went out of it, and I didn't need to do it. And so, learning that tool was so important um, to learn how to pr- deal with life essentially before I got the physical recovery. Because I was then I learned, oh no, I need these tools. I need this program to deal with life. Once I did get the physical recovery, and the physical recovery came. Another spiritual experience. So it's two years. I'm working with outside help, a nutritionist, and it's not working. I'm doing the things, and it's not working. And I did the thing that you guys tell me to do, which is ask people who have what you want and do what they do. So I surveyed a bunch of people who had the physical recovery I wanted, and I said, what do you do? 
And they said, they didn't give me a food plan. They said, I get on my knees in the morning. And I said, what are you talking about? You get on your knees in the morning. That's not an acceptable answer that I'm looking for. And this goes to show my brain usually doesn't have the solution for this stuff. My big brain got me into a 12-step program. It's not going to be the thing that gets me out of it. And so I started getting on my knees in the morning. And lo and behold, the weight came off. It's that special sauce of this fellowship. It's a spiritual solution, no matter what. So uh, it took several... So then... I put the food down, I'm, I'm living my life, but I'm still using other stuff. And about 10 years into program, my life fully exploded. I got a DUI, uh, I got fired from my job, we all did in a regime change, and I had had another toxic relationship that I didn't want. I like, didn't know how, like at this one I was like pushing away, but at this point like with enough outside help, I'm like, I know this pattern, I don't want to do it. But I worked with him, and, like, I couldn't keep him out of my life. And so, like, all of this I call my spiritual shitstorm. Oops, sorry, I didn't mean to swear. But it was the thing that, like, brought a whole new level of healing to the surface. And I um, I was like, something's not right. I remember, this is embarrassing, very embarrassing to admit, but I, I'm going to combat my shame and say, it was while I was laying in a jail cell in Santa Monica, staring at the wall, that I was like, I heard God say, something needs to change. And thank God that happened, because my life has changed in such a new, miraculous way um, since. And what happened is I had to go to new outside help. Um, and cause Also, the other thing that was happening at the time that was really freaking me out was I started crying uncontrollably all the time. And this comes from somebody who didn't feel feelings before. Now I'm feeling feelings like when I can't control them, like waking up in the middle of the night and crying. I was like, what the F is happening to me? Is my brain broken? And I went to a new outside help, and what had come up is that I had all of these frozen feelings that I had stuffed down with food and stuffed down with compulsion that were ready to come up. I was in a safe enough place. I had the resources. I had the time, and I needed to start processing. That I was never wrong. I was never um, unlovable because of the compulsions. I was doing my brain and my body, and God had given me these um, broken tools that worked really well at the time to check me out of what was a really scary household. And I learned, and we had the language for it now, um, that my mother had an undiagnosed mental illness, and the rage and the drinking and the criticism um, was because of this mental illness that had been unchecked and had been all turned on me. And I was um, just a symptom of this dysfunctional family system. And let me tell you, it took a long time to get over the rage that came up around this, that I had basically been gaslit my entire childhood, uh, that I was the problem. But luckily, there's a 12-step program for that, and I can talk to you afterwards about working that program. Um, and it just gave me a new sense of, like I put a bunch of other stuff down, like more programs, put down the toxic relationships, um, minimize the drinking. We'll see if I stick to that program. That could be in my future, but right now it's not, it doesn't seem to be, um, I don't identify in that, but I know it's there. But I put down enough that I was able to really, really, really work, um, use the tools around all of this, all of these feelings that were coming up. And really through the inventories and some other programs, see these patterns of behavior. And because I was sober from so many new things, like the layer of the onion had been peeled, 
I could just hear the voice in my head, this inner critic, and how it attacks me about everything. And now the work is like really being sober enough in all the things to be mindful of what voice is talking to me. Like when I listened to my podcast, when I did the podcast for Kitchen Sink, and immediately the shame came up. You talk too fast. Your brain like didn't tell the story properly. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, that's a voice that I developed to protect myself as a kid, that if I was perfect, I wouldn't attract abuse and criticism. Thank you. I hear you. I'm going to choose not to listen to that voice today. I'm going to choose to listen to the one that's like, you're showing up and being of service. Your ego doesn't know who needed to hear whatever it is that you had to say, uh, whatever it is you had to say. And so right now, to uh, just fast forward, because of the peeling of the young in, I have gotten to this place where I, and the writing in these rooms, I've gotten to a place where I don't want to work in toxic environments and I want to be more, much more creative. And eventually if I become successful, I have to work in toxic, with toxic people and I have the tools now, but like I'm drawn to this, thank you, more uh, into this arena that's new, which means there's no W-2, there's no steady paycheck, and it's really scary. And the inner critic is, you know, I told you guys that it's really hard for me to even think that I won't be self-sufficient. The inner critic is so loud from the second I get up. You need to be, you need to be uh, hustling. You need to be making money. Why aren't you finding something to make money? Blah, blah, blah. And like literally the panic that from the second my eyes open. And this program teaches me, I roll onto my floor and I get on my knees and I say, God, I need help with this voice. I need help. I need your help today. I know you're going to provide the resources. You always do. I've been shown that in the last 17 years to such a radical degree. And, uh, and I knew that to treat the boys, I needed to do a 90 and 90. It's my first 90 and 90. So every day I'm being injected with this faith, this faith voice and this faith message that's God's got it. I just show up and do the footwork. And lo and behold, in the last couple weeks, I have gotten so many calls about jobs. Like, granted, it's in the other thing, but I feel like it's God just showing me, like, there's always going to be resources. It's always, I'm always going to take care of you. So, like, it just calms that voice down. And what I don't get to do, and I'm not doing, and it's a miracle, I'm not going to the food. I'm not going to the other compulsions. I'm totally clear to be able to hear this stuff, hear the voice I want to listen to, and not that shame voice. That is still there, but, like, I take my medicine. It's this. It's the spiritual solution, and I don't have to listen to that voice, and I'm so grateful, uh, and I will stop there. Thanks for letting me share. I think we have time for questions. Yeah, thanks. The question was, as I'm doing something new and scary, do I have cravings for the old compulsions and what do I do? The answer is emphatically yes. <laughs> and I'm not perfect. And sometimes I'm having an extra bite. And lo and behold, sometimes I, I was really nervous I was going to put on my jeans last weekend and they were going to be tight. And that's also, too, where the disease, like, no, I put on my jeans, they were fine. I'm not beating myself up for taking an extra bite. I'm a compulsive overeater. That's where I have an abstinence and, you know, all of my other bottom lines and stuff and other programs. And I'm just honest about what I'm doing. And I just bring so much 
love and gentleness around like, yeah, I want to take the edge off. This is really, really, really scary. And I'm not going to do it perfectly. And that's okay. I'm not breaking my abstinences. I don't have negative consequences for my behaviors. I'm being honest with other people about what I'm doing. And then it gets alleviated. And right now, you know, by the grace of God, right, I'm wearing the same size that I uh, am, like was wearing when I had a paycheck last year. So, like, that is a crazy miracle. Thanks, Ed. It's great to hear you. So, how has um, the recovery changed your relationship with your how has uh, the program changed my relationship with my family of origin? Shockingly, I speak to my family and I have so much compassion around what happened. And that took God and a lot of time and a lot of resources of people. Like the same thing in program. Find people who have you, what you want and do what they do. I found experts who know how to deal with this mental illness my mother has and deal with people who have gone through children raised in it. And um, we and my parents have shown up for family therapy, uh, which I asked for. I didn't speak to them for six months, which was the biggest gift that I've given to myself uh, to reset the relationship. And you know, it's been a lot of outside help and other programs of how to manage my own expectations and build this other new tool called boundaries, which are rock solid. And it's, I do that imperfectly too. Like sometimes I can get triggered. And I'll go to my outside help. I'm like, when does this end? When does it end? And sh- and it's like, that brings me back to like, I use the tools. Like, this is why I keep showing up and keep coming back. I never graduate. There's more to learn. There's more to heal. And thank God, because when there's more healing, there's more like joy and expansiveness. And so, you know, it's part of the process. Imperfectly. Imperfectly. Can you talk about how your Yeah. Can I talk about how my um, concept of God has expanded or evolved? Um, So I was raised a Jew. Uh, There was a storybook God. That's like, I had no connection to anything practical or spiritual. Um, But I always had this presence for me. I wouldn't know what to call it when I was a kid that basically was always around and like would whisper in my ear like, these people are idiots, like, in regards to my parents, <laughs> like, I don't know, like, to just bring me, I don't know what it was, I just, I had always this presence, and, like, always felt, like, so strongly, like, a strong intuition, and I believe that's God, didn't know how to call it that until I came into the rooms, and I really acted as if, in the beginning, I'm like, well, I don't know, you, I'm just gonna do this stuff, and it's been the daisy chain of crazy God shots, like, insane. Like, I need, I don't, I'm not good with subtle. I need, like, very tangible, insanely synchronistic things to happen. And they have. And then I'm like, there's no way any of this could be coincidence. And that has really expanded my belief that there's a higher power that's looking out for me if I just access it. And now I've, like, I love it. Um, I call it God. I call my higher power. I've, I've gone so deep into the metaphysical realm. We can talk about it afterwards. Like, and it's, it's funny, it's just drawn me into a lot of what I'm doing now, too, professionally. So um, I just feel really lucky to have that presence that I can access when I choose to, instead of choosing the other other voice. Thank you. Um, when you were listening to your own podcast and you heard the voice say, oh, my brain told the story the wrong way, nobody understood what I was talking about, um, first, did you recognize that voice right away? And then the 
second, how did you respond to it in the moment? Thanks for that. When I was uh, really shaming myself about my own podcast, did I recognize the shame voice right away? And how did I respond? The more sober I am from all the things, the quicker I am to hear the voice. And um, it was pretty fast because what it, the other thing that's happened is I feel everything in my body now because I'm not numb. So all of a sudden my body starts feeling like heavy and I like am like shrinking in and I'm like feeling like low. I'm feeling low. And I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, oh, because I'm binging on this like lower voice and it's bringing me down. And that's a weird cuckoo thing to say, but like that's what happens now. Like I feel it in my body and I don't want to feel, I want to feel expansive and joyous and like light. Also, I always want to feel light. I don't want to feel heavy. (laughs) So uh, that's a good signal for me that like I'm listening to the wrong voice is when I'm feeling it in my body. Well, I've learned through outside help stuff that, like, I don't go to war against that voice. It was developed to uh, protect me as a kid. And so I just say, thank you. I hear you. I understand that you're trying to do something to, like, so I'll be better next time. So I'll be perfect next time. So I get the A-plus prize ribbon. And I don't need that anymore. You know, I can just say that's not what it's about. Um, I'm lovable no matter what that podcast sounded like. And, like, thank you for showing up because you're doing the best you can. So I treat it like the loving parent that I wish I had had. Can you talk a little bit more about um, how you found your sponsor, how that relationship evolved, finding another, like, challenges? Yeah. Yeah, in this program, I feel very lucky in that I think it was my third meeting that I went to. It was Kitchen Sink when I figured out the right time for Kitchen Sink. And a woman was the newcomer contact, and she stood up, and she had the things exteriorly, the checklist that I wanted. And I, I almost felt like, like, we all had to ask the boys in high school to prop dances. Like, I don't know what was going on, but, like, I felt that same sort of, like, sheer terror when I was going to ask her that I did when I asked somebody to prom. And this time it turned out well. <laughs> she said yes, and it stuck. Um, and I've just been really lucky to, she's just been a great, unconditionally loving person. In other programs, I've had experience of having to leave, been fired, had to fire people. I don't like that word. Like, part ways. They weren't right fits. So I've had to really, um, again, it comes to listening to my body or listening to that inner voice of, like, what's the right fit? Um, what is, is this a beneficial spiritually relationship for both of us um and yeah it's it's patience it can be imperfect for me um and really it's just about working the steps and uh asking god all right god please bring someone into my life please i will show up for that opportunity if you bring the opportunity to me i'll show up for it i'll meet it um and i talk to god a lot i you know i bargain with god step 11 in the a 12 and 12 is interesting about like be okay to ask for what you want, like, if it be thy will. And so that's what I always qualify everything with. Um, That's fine. All right, thank you.